Good morning, church. I was uh, doing some sorting in the basement this week. Uh, I'm always sorting in the basement, my wife would say, but I was sorting through a box of old video games. Yeah, the pastor has lots of old video games. They're all my kids. Of course, of course. But I found one, a football game, that had a bunch of quotes by Mike Ditka. And it made me think about the days of Da Coach. You remember Da Coach of Da Bears, who first he was a, a pro ball player, and then he was a Super Bowl winning coach. And I, I remember one of his swan song notes when he was being interviewed after being fired from the Bears. In the press conference, he said, as the scriptures say, this too shall pass. The coach, great football player, great football mind, not actually a great Bible scholar because the scriptures don't say this too shall pass. But it's one of a number of things that we imagine to be in the Bible that aren't in fact in the Bible. And those of you who are with us through the summer, you know that we took a bunch of these sayings that have been misattributed over the years to the Bible. Things like God helps those who help themselves. Turns out that one's not in the Bible either. And actually, if you press a little bit further, you find out it was Benjamin Franklin who said that, which not a bad thing, except that it's actually opposed to one of the key ideas that the Bible does teach, that God helps us precisely because in things that matter the most, in matters of sin and suffering and life and death, there really is nowhere else to turn, and we cannot help ourselves. Surprising number of statements like these that people think are in the Bible, but they're not. God will never give you more than you can handle. You've heard that one? Not in the Bible either. The Bible says in one place that God might not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can stand. But you know and I know people who have often been given lots more than they could handle. Spare the rod and spoil the child? That one's not in there. God moves in mysterious ways. Uh, it may be true, and it's actually, it's a hymn lyric from quite a while ago, I think, Rochelle, but not in the Bible. There was a professor of religion at Hope College. His name was Stephen Prediger, and says, uh, sometimes in his class, Bible college class, he would ask people to turn their Bibles open to the book of Second Hesitations, chapter 4, and then he would... He would kind of watch as his students flipped through looking, and then they'd have to go to the table of contents, and where is it? Another professor, a rabbi named uh, Rami Shapiro at Middle Tennessee State University, said he had to spend half an hour one day in class trying to persuade a student that the saying, that dog won't hunt, is not one of the Proverbs. You know, verily I say to you, that dog shall not hunt. It sounds like something the Bible might say, but it doesn't. Now, I bring all this up because there is a statement that most people are absolutely convinced is in the Bible, but it's not. A lot of people think Jesus said it, but he didn't. He said something different, and the difference between what we think he said and what he actually said is enormous. And it has huge implications for how you will live your life as a follower of Jesus and how we, how we will live our lives as the church of Jesus. So see if any of you have ever heard this one. Be in the world, but not of the world. 
How many of you have said that? I've said that. How many of you have said that as if you're quoting from somewhere in the Gospels, but you can't find the reference? Because Jesus never actually said that. I used to think that he said that, but it's not there in the Bible. Now, he had a lot to say about the world, and he had a lot to say about not being of the world, and he had a lot to say about being in the world. But the, what he said and the way he said it was important in a really different way. So the passage that Lisa read us, I'm going to have us look at it again, because here's the passage that actually comes the closest. Jesus is praying for his disciples right before the epic events that lead him on the journey towards the cross. And this is what he prays. He says to them, this is John 17, if you want to open up your devices and and look at it with me, John 17, verse 14, he says, I have given them, his people, his followers, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world, any more than I am of the world. Listen to this. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them, Jesus prays. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. See, Jesus is making a really, really important distinction between his followers and what he calls the world. And as in many cases, so much hangs on how we understand what he meant when he said that. That that word, it all hangs on what it is when he says the world. That that word is so shaped by nuance and context, as are many words, as fact as are all words. It's an important word in the Bible, and it has a number of different contexts. But sometimes sometimes the immediate context is is the right one. Sometimes The world is a reference to the planet that God created. The planet that he made, that he designed, that he loves, that he upholds. Of course, the most famous verse in the Bible that uses the word world like that is the one that, well, many of you, this was the first verse you ever learned. John 3.16, you can say it with me if you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him an effort of trust. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But you know, sometimes in the wor- in the in, in the in the Bible, that word "world" is used to describe the sphere, or the dimension, or the arena in life where God is defied. That part of life where sin rather than God reigns, where, where darkness rises. And the important thing to remember is that when, when the Bible uses the word that way, you don't get to divide the world up into us good people here in the church and those worldly people outside of the church. Because the arena in which sin has impact, where God is defied, that goes on inside of me as well. There is a line that runs right through the heart of the human race, and it runs right through my own life. What Jesus seems to be saying is that that those who aspire to follow him, that they ought to be somehow different 
as they're following him than they would be if they didn't, if they just sort of drifted along in that arena where sin and darkness has ascendancy and they hold sway. They ought to be different. And so the big question, the question we'll spend some time on today, is how? How ought we to be different? In the church where I grew up, we talked an awful lot about being different, about being in the world but not of the world. And we approached it, in retrospect, in all kinds of goofy ways. See if any of you remember some of these things. When, when I was in third grade, there were a few weeks in physical education class that were set aside so that we could practice square dancing. Anybody? Is that just me? You, square, you remember the days of square dancing? They were awful. Yeah, just, but, but that was the one place where the world was allowed to overlap into the church because that was the one form of dancing that we did in the church. It's like you can go this far, but no further because all other dancing is worldly. No tap dancing in the church. None of that clutch and sway dancing that all you worldly people are doing at high school dances. We just sort of do si our way, consoling ourselves with the idea that Jesus said, The world is going to hate you when you take your stand with me. And this was the stand. I will square dance, but I will go no further. See, a lot of people think that's what Jesus meant when he said, be in the world, but don't be of it. What they take it to mean is that avoid it as much as you can. You're kind of stuck here for a little while, but try to have as little to do with the world as possible. But that's not what he said. His plan actually was not that his followers would practice world avoidance. What he said, if you still have your Bibles open, John 17, verse 15, my prayer is exactly the opposite. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, not that they go into these little Christian ghettos and Christian bubbles and just hang out with each other and listen to Christian music all the time and read Christian books all the time. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them. Protect them from the evil one. That you sanctify them, it says in verse 17. That means that you make them holy, immerse them in love and patience and gentleness and kindness and courage. Make them the kind of people that you have designed them to be. Redeem them, sanctify them by the truth, because your word is truth. And then comes this amazing statement in verse 18. This just, this ought to get your heart racing. As you sent me, this is Jesus speaking, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. When you get a hold of those words, it will change your life. Let's, uh, Lucas, put those words back up on the screen again. Let's read those words together. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. If you were with us last week here or online, you'll know that we saw that, that Jesus didn't really start the church and then give the church a mission department. We are not here just for us. We're not even here primarily for us. Jesus was here on earth with a compelling mission. And to that mission, he gave a church. 
He created the church for that purpose. He said to people, hey, God has something in mind. Why don't you come along with me while we're doing it? I'm sending you. That's the way that he did it, with urgency and with absolute concreteness. It was meant to be tangible, touch and feel, up close. There was purpose to it. It's, it's no wonder that we ache for purpose in our lives for a cause bigger than ourselves. We were made for this. We were made to be part of something bigger. And that's what Jesus says he gives us. As the Father sent Jesus, now Jesus longs to send you. That's why you're here on the planet. So here we are in this great cosmic creation of God. Every human being around you, an eternal creature. And right now you can touch them you can talk to them and see them and you can bless them. And you have the opportunity to, to engage with them. And all eternity is at stake in the one game that matters forever. And Jesus says, I'm sending you. You were built for a purpose. That's why, it's why we long to be purpose-driven people. The last thing in the world, Jesus would say, is I want you to avoid the world. Don't let it contaminate you. Have as little to do with the world as possible. Just hang out with the church people and stay away from the people who use bad language and smell like cannabis and you know they're the bad people and, and you're the great people. He says being sent as an agent of God into the world is your job. That your neighborhood, your networks, your circumstances, your situation, that's the reason you're on the planet. And the, the verse that really gets the heart of these mission-engaged people running 100 beats per minute, John 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Boy, we ought to just emblazon that right on the exit door of the church. So we see it every week. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And then he tells his followers how it is we're to be sent. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in Matthew in chapter 10. Because here we have the account of Jesus sending out that original group of his people, his followers, for the first time. He's a brilliantly creative teacher. Many of you already know that about Jesus. And in this short passage, he uses three different metaphors for how we are sent out into the world. How do we engage? They're pictures and they use animals as word pictures. So in the moments that remain in this little talk, I want to walk you through how Jesus invites us to engage the world. And then I'm going to give us a moment to respond. Here's the first way. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 16, his disciples going out for the first time, sending them on mission. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. That would be an unexpected metaphor. Because, I mean, let's face it, the sheep is, is not an inspiring animal. Right? There are all kinds of sports teams out there. The bears, the tigers, the, the lions, diamondbacks, wolverines, badgers. What are some other ones? Sharks, dangerous animals. The, the eagles, hawks, bulls, panthers, stallions, raptors, bobcats, I don't know, grizzlies. I can't think of a single team, professional, college, or high school, called the Sheep. <laughs> Maybe we ought to have a softball team, the MCBC Sheep. But 
But you know, it just it doesn't it doesn't inspire people. I can't even think of actually I can one significantly famous sheep, and this will date me. But any of you remember uh, in childhood a puppeteer named Sherry Lewis, a sock puppet? You remember what that was named? Lamb chop. What a terrible name for a puppet. Because how do you, this is a sheep, right? How do you get a lamb chop? You kill it and you cut it anyway. There's <laughs> lamb chop. Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep. He doesn't stop there. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. So here's the question. How do you go out like sheep among wolves? Very carefully, that's right. That's exactly right. Humbly. You don't go, you don't go out and say, hey wolves, we're here to straighten you up. Hey wolves, we're here to tell you to get in shape. No, it's interesting what Jesus is teaching here. We saw it last week. Sometimes he talks about folks that are still far from God. And he says he has compassion on these people. He says that they're helpless and they're harassed. They're they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, in that same passage of Scripture here this morning, he says that they're also like wolves, and now this time you're the sheep. So which is it, Jesus? You're mixing your metaphors. Are they sheep or are they wolves? Are we sheep or are we wolves? Of course, it's both. They are sheep in that they, they need a shepherd. They're wandering around. They're lost. Sometimes they're lost without even knowing how lost they are. And that applies to you as well. Bless you. (laughs) But they're also wolves. And maybe there's a little bit of wolf in you too. Because they resist. They guard their territory. Uh, That's me. I don't know if that's you, but that's me. I need the shepherd, and yet I resist him. That's why when we talk about the world, we have to be really clear about how the Bible uses the concept of the world. And not just toss it around in superficial ways that exaggerate the differences and make it sound like it's all dark out there and it's all light and sunshine in here. Now he says, I want you to go out as sheep, knowing there would be a lot of resistance, as there is in every human heart. There's an awful lot of it in the GTA right now. That doesn't mean that the people in here are smarter or superior. That's just the way the human heart is. And the only way to penetrate past all those defenses is to go not as wolves, but as sheep. Vulnerable. Willing to suffer. Willing to engage from the bottom and not command from the top. Willing to serve. I think we're at actually kind of a unique moment in the life of the church here in the West. And it's a moment where God is speaking again to the church. I think part of what he's calling the church to is a posture of humility. Now, we know the church has been humbled in Canada, but we don't see that as a gift. Can we use it as a gift? I think we're going to have to earn the right for the gospel to be heard. And maybe that's not a bad thing. That's going to mean without agenda, coming alongside folks and just caring, especially for the people for whom no one else is caring. It means asking, where are people open? Where is their tenderness and sensitivity? Usually, you know, when 
when leaders want to inspire troops before sending them out, they'll paint this vivid picture of how gloriously successful they're going to be. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. This is the first time he sends them out. As you hear these words, imagine you're one of the disciples. There you are in the huddle. A lot of times right before the game, team, they put their hands in the huddle, they get one last pep talk, and then it's go team. So here's the Jesus go team moment. Here's his pep talk. If you want to follow along, we're still in Matthew 10. We're in verses 17 through 21. We're just going to skim through them. All right, here we are in the huddle. Be on your guard. They will hand you over to their local councils. They may flog you in their synagogues. When they arrest you, don't worry about what to say. Brother will betray brother even to death. And a father, his child. And children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. Go team. Huh. Who does that? I mean, who, who talks that way? Why does Jesus talk that way? Because he needs his disciples to know that following Jesus is not a promise of success, at least not the way we understand success. You're not going to go out there and be covered in glory the way the world thinks of glory. The sheep is not a heroic animal. Part of what Jesus is asking that we leave behind is, is the world's standards of heroism and success and glory. You're going to have to die to some of that. There's going to be resistance, Jesus is saying. There's going to be a cost. It's going to take a different kind of hero. But I promise you this, and this is a promise just based on, on, uh, on anyone who has taken a careful glance at the history of God's people over 21 centuries. The church is always at its best when it goes into the world humbly like sheep among wolves. Ironically, a few centuries after Jesus, when the church finally did get some political power and financial power and even military power, God forbid, it lost most of its spiritual power. And as all that was going on, one of those early Christ followers, John Chrysostom, was reflecting about this verse, about being sent like, like sheep among wolves and how it had been lost by a church that thought that the world could be ruled from the sharp end of a sword, confess or die. This is what Chrysostom wrote. He said, let us be ashamed who do to the contrary, who set upon our world like wolves set upon their enemies. For so long as we are sheep, we conquer. When we become wolves, we are worsted. For the help of our shepherd departs from us. For he feeds not wolves, but sheep. Remember that moment when when Jesus appeared for the first time as an adult on the pages of human history, John the Baptist looked out across the Jordan Valley, saw him coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then in, 
in the climax, in the last book, in the book of Revelation, this fabulous picture, John says he has this vision of Jesus, the Lion of Judah in all of his power, but the metaphor shifts right there. It says he saw Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. There's nobody like Jesus, the Lion of Judah who came to earth and is now the Lamb who was slain. I will send you out, Jesus says, like sheep among wolves. What else does he say? Let's, uh, time is running out. Let's run through the, the last two quickly. Jesus says also in Matthew 10, verse 16, I want you to be wise as serpents. I love that Jesus included this one. So often people think of Jesus as, as naive, some well-intentioned dreamer who just sort of floated along serenely above all human difficulties. He was not. Among other things, he was serious about getting God's work done. And he wanted the people who were devoted to him, who followed him, to be wide awake and, and, and honest about reality and think about things like strategy and tactics and being effective. To take failure seriously and learn from it. Look how often Jesus sends out the disciples and they fail. And then there's a teachable moment. God uses it to re-equip them and resend them. They would roll up their sleeves like any serious CEO would do. And this time they're not talking like a corporation trying to make money. They're talking about extending the work of the kingdom of God. But the point was, when you're invested in something that matters, you're careful about whose hands you put it into and how you do it. Got one of those emails this week that has a bunch of additions to Murphy's Law. Have you seen? You've seen these things. They. They just, they litter the internet. That's what the internet has become, just littered with this stuff. But here was one of Murphy's laws this week, and it made me smile. One of them it said is, when you go into court, <laughs> when? Okay. When you go into court, remember that you are putting yourself into the hands of 12 people who weren't smart enough to get out of jury duty. <laughs> That's kind of a scary thought. Point is not to get out of jury duty. The point is to be shrewd. There's a there's a tool that we use as staff, just sort of comparing staff strengths and compatibility, and it uses these three metrics. And I really like them: hungry, humble, and smart. Jesus wants to put the movement in the hands of people who are hungry, humble, and smart, who are realistic and serious about actually being effective. And so they evaluate and they experiment and learn. They are wise like serpents. They, they're crafty and clever and smart. I love that Jesus has said this. He's talking about, about God's calling and what it means to follow it. I, I had a chance to speak with one of our, uh, one of our emerging young leaders this week. We were reflecting an awful lot on God's calling. How do I find out? He said, I mean, how do I really discern what God's mission might be in my own life? We, we agreed that for the most part, it's going to involve a fair amount of wisdom, cultivating wisdom. And I would say that wisdom will lead you to a place where you can understand that God's call, his purpose, his mission for your life will exist at the intersection of several different streams, your passion, your gifts, your scars, your partners around you, and the world's needs. 
If you're trying to discern God's will, maybe you want to just note that down. Passion, gifts, scars, partners, and the world's need. Passion is that area of the world that that fires you up. Does anybody remember that old cartoon character, Popeye the Sailor Man? Popeye the Sailor Man. Popeye's passion was injustice. Whenever he saw injustice, something in the world would just snap. You know, and something inside of him would, would burst out. You remember he would say this, that's all I can stands and I can't stands no more. And then he'd eat a can of spinach and he'd grow these tremendous muscles, he called them. You have some area of passion in your life. Maybe it's around hunger. Maybe it's around refugees. Maybe there's something that happened in the crisis of Ukrainian refugees. Maybe it's single moms or lonely seniors. But it's something that fires up your passion and something inside of you just screams out, that's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. And then you'll look at your gifts. Because we've all been given spiritual muscles, spiritual power, stuff beyond ourselves, a gift of the Holy Spirit. For some of you, it's, it's the gift of warmth and hospitality. You just make people feel embraced. What a gift that is. For some of you, it's uh, gifts of encouragement or mercy or administration or, or helps. We take those things seriously here. We want you to know what those are. And then maybe you'll look at your scars, those places where you've been hurt, because that will equip you to help other people who've been hurt in the same way. From the people who battle addictions to those who spent time in prison to folks who wrestle with, with mental health, joblessness, whatever it is, God never wastes a hurt in your life. There will be partners. Jesus never sends out his disciples alone. He called 12 of them, and when he sends them out, he always sends them out on many mission teams, two by two at least. So they went it together. So you have your passion, you have your gifts from God, you have your scars, you have your partners, and then Jesus gives you the mission. As the Father sent me, he said, so I am sending you. Be like sheep among wolves. Be shrewd, be canny, be clever, be realistic. Bring your best to this and be serious. Be wise like serpents. And then one last thing. He says, be innocent as doves. Doves were for the bird world. I guess what sheep were for the mammal world. They're thought of as quite innocent creatures. The main thing that Jesus sends into the world is not what we do, a people doing things, but who we are, a people in whom God has done something. And maybe the problem with a lot of compassion movements is that they focus entirely on a group of isolated deeds. What the world needs most is transformed character from within. It's what Jesus wants to release into the world. I'm really excited that in the middle of trauma and pain and just unspeakable, unspeakable terror, I'm excited to see the way that churches in Poland and churches in Bulgaria, churches in Romania have opened their doors 
and are flooded to capacity. Every chair pushed to the edges, every square foot in the basement and on the upper level filled. Feeding people, housing them, clothing them. As a church, we want to get behind that. And lots of you have asked, how can we support it? Uh, you got information in our, in our email uh, on Monday. You got it again on Thursday. But we want to resource and equip the churches that are responding in Jesus' name because we don't just want it to be blankets. We want them to be exposed to people in whom Jesus is doing something. Just not what they do, but in whom Jesus is doing something. So that this is a gospel moment in the life of the world. In fact, we're sending one of our partners, Pastor Peter Trofimov of the Slavic-speaking congregation, who will be coming in here just as you're making your way out. He's going to Poland, and he's going to capture up a, a bunch of needs and opportunities that we can pray for, maybe a few families that if they're looking to relocate, they can bring back. But I love that this gets done in Jesus' name. As the Father has sent me, So I send you. I want you to go like sheep among wolves. Be shrewd and canny and clever, wise as serpents. But I want you to be innocent like doves. I want you to allow God to work in you, work on your character. Because the main thing that you bring to the world is not the stuff that you do, but the person that you are becoming. Innocent as doves. And it's interesting, you know, that the only person to whom that really applies fully is Jesus himself. That's why it's important that it's done in his name, not in ours. The world doesn't need more compassion movements just powered by human initiative. What it really needs is Jesus. That's why I think the most important thing Jesus says when he sends you out is, when you go... I'm going with you. You won't be by yourself. You won't be overwhelmed by your inadequacies and your incompetence. Because it's not just going to be you, it's going to be me. And in ways that you might not fully see or understand, I'll be there because you're going out into the world that I love. I think that's about enough for today, isn't it? except for the question that kind of hangs in the air at the end. Uh, It's the will you go question. Will you say yes to these things that Jesus is talking about? So much of what Jesus does when he's teaching, they're not so much commands as they are declarations. Does your heart race faster when you hear Jesus declare, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world? And that's not so much a command as it is just an affirmation of what you are meant to be. Salt exists for the sake of the food. Nobody just eats a bowl of salt. I hope not. Salt doesn't exist for itself. It's a gift to the food. It preserves, it enhances flavor. How close does salt have to be to the food for it to work? A foot away? An inch away, no, it actually has to be rubbed right in there, into the food, touching it. How close does a follower of Christ have to be to the world in order to be useful? Close enough to touch. You have to be in the world. The church doesn't exist just for us, not for our own sake. Salt exists for the sake of the food. The church of Christ exists for the sake of the world, and that's why you have to go. 
And God forbid we ever mix it up. And it turns out that we we were more of the world than we cared to admit without ever really being in it. There's so many ways to do that. Take a walk through your neighborhood. That was the exercise from last week. Maybe you did that. Just talk to some people. Go to restaurants now that you're allowed to go again. Go to the same stores, the same cafes. Order from the same clerk. Get to know them. Tip well. Remember that. Get your hair cut. Because then they've got you captive, but you've got them captive. You know, you don't have to go through the steps to peace with God tract. Just get to know them. And at some point early on, when you're getting to know folks, let them know, yeah, I'm part of a church, this little faith community. You say, hey, you know what? That thing we're talking about, church was just talking about that, Ukraine, and we're going to try and do something to help. It can be really easy to introduce a faith component to conversation when your faith is connected to what's actually going on in the world. Ask Jesus to help enable you to talk to another person and just take that next little step, whatever it is. So in closing, I just want to say a word or two about the next few weeks, about the Easter season, because we've got some great weekends coming up. And now that we can finally open our doors, and you'll notice this week we finally set some more chairs in here, and that's why you're a little more spread out, and we got room, and we're going to add the 9 o'clock service back in. But just a few words about the Easter season and the weekends that are coming up, because uh, they're not just designed for us. We want those empty chairs to be used not just for us. Next week, the whole message is going to be devoted to explaining how it is that somebody becomes a follower of Jesus. We just want to speak with absolute clarity on what the gospel is, on why it's good news, and on why people might want to latch on to it. And we're going to invite people to respond. We have a way of doing that. I think we'll be really creative. And maybe you have a friend who you know have been been asking a lot of questions, and they're right there at the edge, or maybe that's you. Or maybe you're joining us online. You don't have to be here in person to respond creatively the way that we have in mind. Next weekend would be a great time. All of you, just pray like crazy this week for what God might do. A week later, we're going to celebrate in baptism. A bunch of people, all different ages. I think... Like one member of every generation up the ladder from 10 all the way into the 70s. We have a marvelous, a 70-year-old lady, Muslim her whole life until two years ago. We're going to baptize her. I mean, you don't want to miss that. That is the living witness to the gospel. We've got great resources to take you through the Easter season. Vinroy mentioned earlier the Easter experience. Powerful stuff. Easily shareable stuff. You know, you're always looking at each other's phones anyway. Have them look at your phone while you're watching that. It's great. And we're going to put those things out there as resources. And then, of course, Easter Sunday when, you know, no holds barred. We're just here to celebrate. Easter season is coming. We've been sent into the world, sheep among wolves, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So I wanted to give you at the end of the service just a moment to affirm and respond to that big ask, will you go? Are you willing to say with Jesus, I'm all in? This is your chance to respond. Will you 
Maybe bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Jesus, just as he has done for thousands of years, is is here and among us and saying, just as my Father sent me, now I'm sending you. And I know about your inadequacies and your weaknesses, but I also know about your gifts. And I know about your experiences, and I'm sending you into this world that I love. And if you're willing to go, if you're willing to serve, maybe you just want to whisper the word yes right now. Heavenly Father, would you be at work in our church? Everybody sitting in the room, everybody joining us online, everybody who wants their life to be an adventure with eternal significance. God, something that matters, something that counts. Lord, would you sanctify us? Clean us up from all the sin and junk. God, we want to love the world the way that you love it. We don't want the darkness to take primacy in our lives. We're honest, God. We are just as fallen as as those outside of these walls. But we pray that you would redeem our character. And then, God, would you make us into this great army of hope, uh, this mighty team of, uh, of suffering sheep. Go into the world to love and serve in Jesus' name. And we ask it because you are such a good and faithful God. We present our lives as a gift to you. We pray it in the name of the Lamb who was slain, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.